welcome to Have Movies Will Game, the only podcast on the globe where we take you, our friendly listener, to the best and worst movies of yesterday and today, and then discuss ways that you can play them at your gaming table. But the fun doesn't stop there, no sorry. Every few episodes, our intrepid hosts, Matthew, Dusty, and Nathaniel, will ask you, the listener, to vote on which movie they will play as an RPG, recorded in video and in glorious black and white, and brought to you through the electronic wonder of the internet. Now, let's start the show! Hell yeah. Should we kick this nonsense off? Yeah, I think so. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dusty. And this is Nathaniel. And if this is your first time listening, we got a few things you should know. Every week, we take a movie off the screen, we break it down into really cool, interesting components, and then we talk about ways that you can play this at your gaming table with your role-playing group. Warning. There will be spoilers. If you have not watched this movie, we encourage you to hit pause on this episode and go watch it right now. We'll be waiting for you when you come back. So anyway, this week's movie is... Labyrinth. Oh, yeah. I can actually do that and and not have it out of context. (laughs) (laughs) Spell it. Is it B-U-M? I want to say it's bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's bum, pum, pum, pum. Yeah, it's from the scene. That, As a booty man, I approve of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we are doing Labyrinth, where everything seems possible and nothing is as it seems in this movie. So, you guys liked it? Yes? Magical <laughs> girl in a mystical world? What's not to love? I've only seen it maybe four or five hundred times yeah, over I'm the course of my life. The so. same, I think. Yeah. I want to say that watching it over the last couple of days was probably my 50th or 60th time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 500 is a bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but yeah. I, I I am very familiar with this movie. I have never this not isn't... watched that movie with a female companion. Every time. It's just like, they bring it, it happens. It, then it, it just happens. becomes like a bonding yeah. experience. Oh. It's, it's, it's date night and <laughs> labyrinth. And then I look at Bowie, you know, and I feel a, a little buddy. inadequate, <laughs> a buddy, and, I, and I see what's going on here. A, a buddy of mine asked me for a good date movie uh, to show to a girlfriend. Has any is anyone familiar with the movie Happiness? That is yes. that is the it's, it's, best it's, date movie. It's one of the <laughs> sickest, most depraved <laughs> movies I know. Well done. And I, I he can't came I, back. I've seen and it he once. Was so mad. <laughs> I've seen it once. I could never watch it She's again. Like, it's she disturbing. thinks I'm a serial killer. And I go, huh. I mean, I thought it was romantic, but don't ask me for that shit. That's <laughs> I horrible. Figure it out like a man. I, I, I have more respect for you now, I think. <laughs> because I sabotage someone's budding relationship. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, Labyrinth, what do we I'll got? I'll have to remember that. Never ask Matthew for romantic advice. All right, Labyrinth. Labyrinth, I'm sure a lot of you uh, that have seen it before, but those of you haven't, the film revolves around 15-year-old Sarah, who was played by Jennifer Conley, and her quest to reach the center of an enormous otherworldly maze to rescue her infant brother that she kind of screwed up and wished for the Goblin King to come and steal for, from her. Uh, Sarah wished her, baby, wished her kid brother away uh, and is given 13 hours to solve the Labyrinth and rescue that baby brother before he becomes part of the Goblin King's court. Her companions on the way are Hoggle, an irritable dwarf-like creature, who in return for her plastic bracelet agrees to take her as far as he can through the maze. A huge furry gentle monster, Ludo, whom she rescues from a group of tormenting goblins, and the gallant Sir Didymus, a f- kind of like a weird fox terrier 
creature. I, I never really thought if he was a dog or if he was a fox or... He's a fox. He's a fox on top of a dog. He better okay. be a fox or what I wrote later is all gut <laughs> stuff. He ferociously guards the bridge across the bog of eternal stench. So with the exception of Conley and David Bowie as uh, Jareth, the Goblin King, almost all of the film's significant characters are played by puppets and produced by Jim Henson's Creature Shop, which I love, personally. So Sarah. Yes. Chaotic Selfish? Well, well yeah. J- Jennifer Connelly plays Sarah. Um, Chaotic Selfish. I can't wait till you get to what else she's in, because there's one movie that comes leaping instantly to mind. Oh, the... Oh, God, the it's, a, it's another great date movie, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. is. Uh, Jennifer Connelly. Rewatch. I'm sorry. We were watching it for this. That's oh all God. I could hear was that scene <laughs> over uh-huh. and over in my mind. <laughs> But we'll get into that later. Uh, uh, actually, as- I didn't list a whole because I thought we were going to be cut for more time. I didn't list movies that each person had been in. Oh, okay. But you, you know, we can just Wikipedia that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. But Jennifer Connelly, she plays Sarah. She, I'd say chaotic good. I would say lawful neutral. To be honest with you, she doesn't strike me as because of the whole. That's lawful. that's just the way it is throughout the. I mean, she she. I think she turns to that through the movie. I think she might start out as what it, you said. It might, it might be a character uh, change, an alignment change. I could see that. But I, I would say through the majority, chaotic good. Okay. Uh, definitely some chaos. Not so much good, but close. No, she she immediately dives good. back in to, to rescue her brother. I mean. No, it is good. Okay. I Chaotic the whole, fuck you, small child. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think her alignment is teenager. Yeah, I suppose yeah. that's which I w- I would say as a whole would yeah. be well. Jennifer Connelly was fifteen when this movie neutral when they evil. It. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's toddlers. Yeah, <laughs> neutral stupid. I, I don't know. Then we have David Bowie who plays Jareth the Goblin King. Lawful evil. Yeah, lawful evil. He also. messes with the uh, neutral evil. Really? I'd I mean, say neutral evil with a heavy crush on her. He never well, he even obeys crush, his yeah. own rules. Well. He I, breaks them all the time. He's got he? that just oh, yeah. that what, whole what, uh, just fear me, love me, do as I say, and I'll be your slave. That's but he's just sweet, sweet nothings into an impressionable teenager's ear. Like he sets the time. He just like oh well, and changes it. He puts in Hoggle to mess with her. He does all these no, things. No, that's fair. Yeah. Not lawful. Yeah, he doesn't follow the rules. Okay, he, he mm-hmm. says, "Oh, you have to do this, and now I'm going to do whatever the hell I want." Neutral evil. Neutral evil with a crush. Mm. Yeah, like uh, the mad scientist. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have Hoggle played. Actually, Hoggle was played by a few people. Inside the costume and the big bulbous head was Sherry Weiser. And Brian Henson, son of Jim Henson, did the voice. But there were also four other mechanical puppeteers for facial expressions. I would say that Hoggle is chaotic good. I'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Okay. He's he's pretty selfish at times and he's a coward, mm-hmm. but his basic he, alignment. Yeah. He he seems to actually be a good person. Person? Dwarf? Well, he person? Technically the notes say say he's a gnome, a gnome-like creature, but the, uh Jareth refers to him a couple times as a dwarf. Yeah. So and then we have Ron Muick and Rob Mills playing Ludo. 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 Smell bad. <laughs> uh, I think he's just straight up neutral good. Yeah. I'll agree with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a big old sweetie. Yeah, he's he's a big old sweet. Now, my I, favorite character. 
technically, uh, on the technical side of this, the character itself was well over a hundred pounds when they when Jim Henson's Creature Shop was done with oh, the suit, the, the suit and all yeah, the that's it. and everything. And yeah, he bigger, he made right? them cut it down because the guy that the guy that was inside was like a buck forty. <laughs> so <laughs> when it, they they did, they cut it down to seventy pounds. That was what they got it down to for that character. Well, they. I, I couldn't tell. That yeah. looked huge and heavy. And uh, yeah. It had like an air system unit in it, and then it also had a TV so that he could see, because he couldn't see through the mask. So there was a TV oh. and a monitor set up so he could watch like at the stomach or chest so he knew where he was going. Right. Which was kind of cool. And then Dave uh, Goals, who played the voice of Sir Didymus. Hey. Uh, and the dog. My yeah. personal favorite. Uh, Lawful Good. Yes, yeah, definitely. lawful good. I have sworn to do my duty. Yeah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's a my up. permission. Yes, and then we have Toby Froud playing Toby the baby, neutral evil, <laughs> baby. baby. I agree. Baby. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're 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 not even human. Human yeah. is no. yeah. uh, through social contact. Toby Toby <laughs> Froud, babies are psychotic. <laughs> uh, he uh, apparently does live here in Portland, and he is the son to Brian Froud. I almost blanked there for some reason. Uh, who created all of the the goblins and the and the artwork for this movie? Um, has he ever been in anything else? When I was poking through IMDb, he didn't even have a credit. Like I don't think he's actually been an actor in anything else. Uh, I don't like think you know so. how it, it links to a page. Yeah, and there was nothing. It was just his name in parentheses, gray, like normal text. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I think, I, I think I th- that was his one off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I remember reading this a long time ago. It was his one off. He just kind of didn't really want to do anything afterwards. So. Yeah, probably scared the crap out of him with those monsters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never. That's going what acting's about. Movie no. again. I, I mean, look at look at uh the the girl that played Newt in Aliens. That's her only role. Yeah. I mean, she was like an eight year old kid. Then now these monsters coming out of the water. That would freak me out. So and then we have um, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but I, I tried Sacrifices finding is made for art. I know I tried finding how to pronounce his name, but it just wasn't coming up. Michael Motion, uh, he is David Bowie's juggler. Now I know that kind of sounds like a bad thing, but he's the professional juggler who worked blind behind David Bowie to with the with the crystal balls. Oh, that wasn't Bowie. That wasn't no, Bowie. That was not Bowie. I just lost the. Whole lot of respect for Bowie. No, 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 no. There was a guy, the guy behind him in every scene where he had the crystal balls, mm-hmm. he was I'm one to your ways, Bowie. So he was <laughs> he was snuggled up to David Bowie's bottom, as it were. Yes, more or less. But the, the really cool Juggling thing is the balls. I yeah. knew Sorry. this was gonna go. That <laughs> way. Um normally he in and other other performances he could see what he was doing, but because of how they had to, they couldn't just digitally edit him out like you can in today's movies. So there are scenes where Bowie has the big cloak on and he's actually behind him. His head is pressed up against like the lower side of his back, like you know the low, the low crook of his back. His arm is reached around and he's extending it out and he's got the crystal balls. That was so all somebody else. That was all someone else. And he was I doing no all, idea. I've he was doing it all that. by 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 blind. He was blind doing it all. So. Just because he couldn't see what he was doing. That's impressive. Yeah. So it, doing Bowie's balls from behind. <laughs> that's a hell of an IMDb credit. <laughs> Chaotic. Good. Uh, a little bit of history on him. His next door neighbors were um, Penn and Teller when he was a kid. So he grew up Bullshit. learning. No, Sorry, actually, it's true. And his, his first gig was with Penn doing magic shows, which huh. is kind of cool. I was expecting you guys to the go into anything. The magic of editing. I was kind of expecting you guys to go into Speaking something of there. magic. That song, Magic Dance. Yeah. 
You know, everybody loves that song. It's yep. a fun song. I love singing that song. At one point, I considered I might actually make it one of my karaoke regulars. Mm-hmm. Once, once, only once, and never again. Do not attempt to karaoke that song lightly. Why? Unless you are pitch. prepared yeah. for five minutes of dance interludes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you're standing awkwardly <laughs> at the stage because no one else is coming up to dance with you. Are you saying that And you that realize you have you? failed. Are, are, are you saying that it's <laughs> happened to you? Yes. That's that's a sad story, man. It's weird. It was the wrong crowd. Well, tell, tell, me about, uh, tell me about how that felt. Like it as, felt like as, I as, had chosen as as poorly as as the lyrics cut away and you're waiting for them to come back and you're like they're not coming back. Well, there's oh that God, moment they're not coming where back. you see. No, I remember that specific moment where it says dance break, like eighty measures. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! I made a horrible mistake. You like you just fast forward through this part. So there's a nice little there's a nice little tidbit of history with that song. Oddly enough. Uh, that whole magic dance sequence is an homage to actually Cary Grant and Shirley Temple that not a lot of people know. In 1947's The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, there's a scene in which Cary Grant tells Shirley Temple, hey, you remind me of a man. And she replies, what man? And Grant says, uh, the man with the power. What power? The power of who do? Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of a man. So in magic really? dance. Yep. Bowie, Bowie actually replaced it, replaced man with babe and hoodoo for voodoo in the intro. So what was that called again? Uh, it was actually called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. It's a Cary Grant and right. uh, Shirley Temple movie. I will never see it. I, I would like to say that I would, but I don't have time. With all the <laughs> games that I read and all the movies that I watch for this. I think and, I saw something yeah. similar to it on Pornhub. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Carry the dance, on. the scene itself consisted of 48 puppets, 52 pup- puppeteers, and eight people in goblin costumes. You mean Cary Grant's movie had that many puppets? No, 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 no. I'll no. go see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on to another oh, part. but did you count the chickens? I I did not count that the whole scene. I know there's a bunch of chickens full in there. I know. Chickens just hanging out. Oh, they yeah. weren't even freaked out. They were just handling like. What? It's just a bunch of fucking goblins. What so do you care? Initially, there were about 22 people, uh, 22 people and puppets for that whole scene. And when they got everyone that they needed in the shop, puppets included, all, everything ready to go, they said, you know, Jim Henson was like, there's not, en- there's not enough going on. We need to fill the space. With chickens! chickens. So they st- add, added chickens, added more puppets. They put out a casting call for people that could do voices because they had all of these puppets that were ready to go that were made for the movie, so they just added more. And they said once the scene was done and before they broke down the set for the the throne room, it looked like Swiss cheese because there were so many holes where puppets were sitting, it it just it looked like Swiss cheese. Wow. Speaking of puppets, mm-hmm. that scene, that very first time you ever see the goblins, when she starts saying those words mm-hmm. and then it cuts to just... All of their heads, yeah. essentially yeah. in a, a row. That's a creepy for a kid. That was a, such a memorable scene for me. Like whenever somebody, whenever I'm playing in any game and somebody talks about goblins, mm-hmm. I just cannot immediately not picture those goblins. Right, just, boom, they're in my head, and that's why I will never ever take goblins seriously in any D and D game ever. My whole thing was in high school when we would be on stage rehearsing plays, and someone would make would like screw up their line and ad lib it. I'd revert into the goblin. That's not what you say. That's, you didn't get it right. <laughs> Did he say it? 
Keep quiet. She's say about to say what? the words. Say what? <laughs> so this movie was directed by the great and now past Jim Henson. And he is noted as saying that the movie is about a person who, quote, at the end of chain is at the end as uh, eh. this movie is about a person who <laughs> he's is, about to say the words. <laughs> <laughs> say what? Did he say it? <laughs> <laughs> Quote. Oh my God. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Please. Keep uh, that was At the quote, at the point from changing, uh, I still fucked it up. Uh, at the point of changing from being a child into an adult. So and a coming I, of age which, story. Yeah, which we all know is where Bowie story. strikes. Exactly. Oh, so, God. <laughs> and for all of its flaws, and you know, it is something that I know. So for all of its flaws and all of its superficial delights, Labyrinth did reacquaint audiences with the old idea that Hollywood had been long neglecting, and that's childhood is scary, it's a dangerous place, and it's an inherently strange time filled with dead ends, wrong turns, lies, traps, and apparently songs. And David Bowie. And David Bowie. Because yes. an entirely new generation of children and teenagers mm-hmm. were suddenly introduced to this musician. Oh, agree. Yeah. That, that was my first exposure. Yeah. I'd never heard of Bowie before this movie. I had a little yeah. bit. But that and was then like when the you ask your visual. parents, like, you know, who is this? And they pull out <laughs> fucking like, this stack of LPs. And, yeah. <laughs> yep. The story was by Dennis Lee and Jim Henson both. And the screenplay was by, by Monty Python alum Terry Jones. Yeah. Uh, which was really cool to find out. I didn't know that. I mean, I know that I had seen that, but I didn't really put two and two together over all these years. But it uh, it did kind of. Sir Didymus seems like a Terry Jones. Type I, I of gotta character. I gotta tell you something. Yeah. Uh, after uh, watching, I've recently watched in my own personal time a couple of CG films. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk about the effects of models and puppets. Yes. And I was hoping we would go into that. And I just gotta tell you, a it's better. It will always be better for the next fifty years. Having practical, practical yeah. effects are so much better, yeah. and mm-hmm. they stand up so much better. Star and Wars. It, it, it mm-hmm. fires the imagination in a way that strange vistas of CG just can't. Mm-hmm. The, there because you know subconsciously that people are working on it. There's one scene, and it's it's very noticeable that they used a, a, a computer in it. Because oh, it was fire, yeah, the, the fire, fire dance gang. scene. Because yeah. it, what they did with that, and it's a cool scene. It is a cool effect. What they did, yeah, too. they yeah. they they dressed. The, so the the fire people are basically attached to a dancer's body. So mm-hmm. when they move their leg, the leg gets moved. When you move your arm, it gets moved. And then there's another person like moving the head. But in order to make sure they didn't get shown up on on film, they wore black velvet outfits completely. And then they went in and, and, and timed up the computer, you the digital here. set to yeah. it, uh, to that. And that's the one scene in the movie where you can see it, and it's really horrible. And it's the one scene I actually always 80s, skip by. Yeah. I, I mean, always, I respect it completely as a, as a, as a for making films, but... <sighs> so that it's is difficult. what my partner and I refer to as a costume change number. Mm-hmm. If this were a Broadway performance, yeah, no, I that's, agree. That's, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. Kind of like in uh, Frozen with the whole bit of a fixer-upper with the trolls. I've You're never seen Frozen. Oh, there's neither. so many other the movies. The only thing I know of Frozen yeah. is the parody song of Fuck It All. Well, so, so anytime so I many, hear... So many musicals you'll watch and they'll have like this one number and you're like... Why the fuck did they put this number in here? And you realize, oh, it's so everybody can change costumes yeah. for the last act of the thing. Mm-hmm. And that to me felt like it's a costume change yeah. piece. 
It, it, it was a throwaway thing. Yeah, it, it bore very little bearing to the rest of it. It bore very little bearing. <laughs> Sentences, how do they work? The But with that with that scene, I thought it was odd that they went, that Jim Henson went that route with the black velvet and then bringing in the the digital, the first generation digital screening or, or just digital computer with the camera. His buddy... Lucas was on set for most of the movie and was and actually helped with a lot of the technical side. Lucas as in George Lucas as in Star Wars George Lucas. You know, back when we liked him. Exactly. So I was just kind of wondering <laughs> why why isn't like Lucas like hey, I have all this gear, why don't you just go ahead and use it and you can use my stuff too. You're such a good friend of mine. Let me help you out. I think he did it the way he wanted to do it. Okay, I mean, I can, I can respect the, that. The black outfit thing is heavily used in theatrical productions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've seen that a lot on yeah. stage, and I think that he wanted to bring that element okay. to that the works. movie. It makes sense to me. I didn't actually know about the black screen thing until I was watching it just a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and my partner was like, "You know that was filmed those." The fireys are multiple people each, and it's like mm-hmm. <gasps> it all makes sense yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So on the casting. Uh, I, a couple things about Sarah, because there were a lot of people that, that were up for Sarah at this time. Some of them surprised me. Yeah, yeah. me too. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter. That one. Was specifically. In the running for, for playing Sarah. So was, I'm glad she didn't get it. <clears throat> yeah? Yeah, because if you put her and David Bowie in the same room, a lot of history would have been rewrit- rewritten. <laughs> yeah, okay. As opposed to like her eventually hooking up with... Uh, Tim Burton? Yeah. I'm okay with that have never <laughs> happened. Yeah. yeah. Are you? Yeah. The Tim Burton hell on a bottom Carter thing is huh. See, I'm I'm more of a Tim Burton well and Johnny together. Depp is up. No, Hell on a Bottom Carter and Johnny Depp. I think that Tim Burton needs to stop making movies with them in it because he basically is just like, I'm gonna make a new movie and I'm gonna invite my two best friends in the world. Yeah. And it's just uh God, it's awful. That's always it, it, terrible. I'm, I'm and they're always it, in roles that they don't need to be in. I'm going to go on a tangent here, uh, away from from Labyrinth. Yeah, if you look at Johnny Depp's movies, him when he's not with Tim Burton, they're better movies. Agreed. Yeah. Wait, what? When he's not working with Tim Burton, yeah, his movies are better. Example: uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. The Tourist. Okay. Benny Just to name June. a couple. <laughs> Benny and June. All right. Yeah. I'll, What's I'll, eating I'll Gilbert Grape? Yeah. 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 Uh, even the pirates movies, yeah. Well, well, well the first, one. the first, first one, the first, uh, maybe the second the f- one, the first, fourth, and uh, I, well, I didn't like, like the third. Th- I didn't like the fourth because it I was the, fourth the book one. that it was based on. Yeah, the book is amazing. Well, it's so much better. Yeah, and seeing that turned into a Disney movie was sad. Yeah. Anyway, but back we to also have uh, Jane Krakowski who was on Thirty Rock. That blew my mind. I know. That blew my, I didn't even know that she was into doing any kind of acting until that she was in like what wasn't she in like Second City or something, mm-hmm. like doing the improv stuff. Yeah. I think she was with the Groundlings. I thought that's yeah. where she started. So uh, seeing her on that list was awesome. Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, which I'm glad that didn't happen. Me too. I she was in Flight of the Navigator, and even then oh, it was God, like right. she Flight was kind of Navigator. dry. Yeah. Wait, wait. Was she who? What? She was the one that helped him escape the Air Force base. She put him in the car. Yeah, that's Sarah Jessica Parker. Huh. You didn't know? No. Like, if you could see Nathaniel's head, it's like literally exploding right now. I don't know about My exploding, first exposure but I can't to her. see a vein. <laughs> My first exposure to her was Mars Attacks. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then we have Mary Stuart Masterson, who was in 
um, some kind of wonderful and among Benny other and movies. June. Yeah, Benny and June, uh, Laura Dern, uh, Jurassic Park, among other movies. Mm-hmm. Lily Taylor, Laura San Giacomo, Ali Sheedy from The Breakfast Club. Okay, and many others. Uh, Short Circuit was another one. Marissa Tomei, which that one kind of got me. I had no idea there. Me either. But ultimately, Jennifer Connelly won Jim Henson over. And I've watched the audition tapes uh-huh. that you can find up on YouTube. She did a really good job of, of taking that part. Now, Jareth, in the original script, <laughs> in the original script. Now, the script itself <laughs> went through 25 different versions over a couple of years. And it wasn't finalized up until like a few months before filming. And the initial story for the Goblin King was he wasn't even going to show up until about halfway through the movie. And I think it was going to be like a puppet or something? And originally he was yeah. going to be a, go- a bigger goblin puppet. Um, the stuff that I mind on it was the the big goblin at the end that, that protects the city. Yeah. It was going to be something big like that. That's what the Goblin King was going to kind of be. But Just rear up. Yeah, Rawr. exactly. Did you get the list of actors that was up for Jareth? Yes, I did. We're going to start with Sting. He was that he would was, have been okay. He would have been he was going on, but I think he was just coming off of Dune. Yeah, because he he yeah that era Sting would have been fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Also, I'm pretty sure he could juggle balls all by himself <laughs> in a in a tantric style, probably. <laughs> just don't. Ask. That wouldn't have been that just much different than what we got. <laughs> just don't ask what he was. I just Never don't mind. know if he could have filled out. Those trousers, the same. I don't think any. I will did. get to I'm that because sure that's that a sock. <laughs> no, it that whole cod piece. Brian Froud insisted and designed the cod piece. That that is all fake. That, no. Yes. So all. So everybody. So everybody that like <laughs> their puberty was jump started because of this movie. It was all fake. Now I'm sure. I'm sure that David Bowie probably had. I was gonna say has, but probably had. <laughs> A significant package, but for the movie, that was all fake. From that whole paragraph really was odd. (laughs) (laughs) Just odd. Also, Michael Jackson was slated to play Jareth, the Goblin King. Now, you got to think, you got to remember 1984, 1985, Michael Jackson. I'm really glad we didn't. I mean, he would have done well, but I think. I think they were made a good casting choice not to. Though I do think he I really don't played think the Ma- part. I don't think Michael Jackson would have been good for this movie. Of course he could have. No, that's the I'm por- a goblin. No, no, that's why. His no, just his voice, his cadence. I mean, the dancing probably would have been great, but I don't think Michael Jackson would have been a good choice for the Goblin King. When David Bowie, when it was known that he was interested, Jim Henson basically said, Stop the presses, let's re- rewrite it. I want to put Jareth through from the beginning to the end. I want it to be more of like a, almost a rock opera type setup. And he starts sending David Bowie the script. You know, little changes here, little changes there. And he courted Bowie for two years, sending him <laughs> scripts. And every it, they, he'd get him back with little notes like, there's not enough humor. Uh, I don't like this. Let's change it a little bit. But mostly it was because he didn't think it was a, it was a, a comedic enough role but still wanting it to maintain that dark level of of him wanting Sarah. Right. Yeah, I had heard that well, like the final script rewrite came from Bowie saying, uh, it's too dark. You need to get more humor or something. It was a yeah. weird balance. It kept going, it kept yo-yoing back and yeah. forth. So the movie was filmed uh, between mid-April 1985 and September of 85 and was released in June of 1986. That's actually really fast for filming. 
Yeah, they That's had a lot of sets. Incredibly yeah. short. Well, in that two years that they were recording Bowie, I guess they, they were getting all the, the puppets yeah. ready to go. Huh. The budget was $25 million to do the movie. By the way, people, did you hear that? $25 million? Let's adjust that for inflation. That's you're looking at what, what I'm going to do. Uh, $56.5 for today. Okay. Now, to so, play... You can have 20 minutes of shitty CG that'll make people forget you, or spend that money on puppets, which will make them remember you for all of goddamn time. To put that well, into comparison... You also need interesting a, a good male story and female too. leads, unlike that other movie we reviewed. To Come. put that into comparison, uh, for a movie of today, uh, that is Kubo and the Two Strings. That cost Ugh. $55 million to make today. Also an excellent movie. That yes. Was, uh, Stop man. motion. Loved it. Yeah. I thought it was CG at first. And then Me too. I found out that it was all, all stop motion. I've been watching all the pre-production things on it as it was coming along. I, uh, through one of my filmmaking groups. That and, uh, movie brought tears to my eyes at the end. But no, it was, it was, it was ripped done. to yeah. shred at, at Cannes, though. Well, Who cares? Fuck Cannes. Fuck Cannes. No, because of the cast. Nothing else but the cast. Oh, really? Yeah, because oh, it, it, was, it was not ethnically correct, apparently. Suck 16 of them. An actor yeah. is an actor. <laughs> an actor. Any actor of any race can play any part because mm-hmm. of what they do. They're an I, actor. I agree. And it's a, it was a voice part. Yeah. Other movies that had the same production cost but at different times, Stargate was at $55 million, and that was a lot of practical effects. Kill Bill Volume 1, that was $56 million. Wow. And That's a- it? Yep. It's, there's not a lot of like really expensive sets in that one. That I mean. fight? It, okay, well, we'll talk about we'll that one that later. We'll get to that when we do that movie. <laughs> and then Alien 3. That was also $55 million. Now, that's surprising because that had a lot of like non-contemporary set. Well, that movie had uh, production hell because yes. it went through, like what, five different directors? So much of its fine... I think it's fine. that movie's final budget was like $5 million. Yeah. I think that's what Fincher had to work with at the end. Brian right. Froud was brought in to design and conceptualize the world with ideas stemming from Jim Henson. So they basically sat down over a couple of drinks, maybe some hot tea, some coffee or whatever. And Jim Henson said, I want to do a movie about goblins. And Brian Froud went, all right, I can draw that. They were still riding the high from Dark Crystal, weren't they? That was a couple of years prior. Yeah. 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 And the story, to, the way the story goes, how Jim Henson was able to do the Dark Crystal was that he did uh, the, great, the Muppets' Great Escape. The, the, the studios oh, right. I remember that said, one. you want to do... If you want to do Dark Crystal, we'll let you do this little fun little puppet movie that you want to do. You got to do The Muppets Great Escape. That was a great movie, though. Yeah, it was. They didn't think it was going to, you know, that he'd be able to do it. Like, if you hit this level of. of I'm thinking of the sales, one, right one. That was the heist movie with Miss Piggy. Yeah, that was the yeah, heist yeah. movie. That with was a great movie. Diamonds, yeah. And so then you, Terry Jones of Monty Python and wrote the initial first draft of the f- film's early script in 1984. And because he, he was going off of all of Froud's uh, sketches for inspiration. Other script writers included Laura Phillips, who had previously written several episodes of Fraggle Rock, uh, Dennis Lee, and Elaine May, who subsequently rewrote and made additions to the screenplay. Although Jones received the film's sole screenwriting credit, he later said in an interview he didn't feel attached to the movie because it had gone through so many revisions. Yeah, and it's got to really be rough, yeah, honestly. He didn't really like, care. you have this idea that you've polished and worked on for a year. You turn it over, and it just gets hit with machetes over and over and yeah. over again. 25 different rewrites. Yeah. Circling back around to the production costs of the movie uh, and what it brought, what it gave the theater. So the U.S. gross return. Remember how it was $25 million for a budget, right? Yeah. Its U.S. return was $12.7 million. 
Uh-huh. That's it. Uh, it didn't pull its weight at the box office. I'm absolutely positive it made it up in DVD sales. I really couldn't find anything on DVD sales. I am positive. Uh, it, it, I'm sure it did too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it didn't pull its own weight. Its weight at the box office. So TriStars pulled it after a month from every single theater. Oh. They said nope. That was stemmed from the fact that Jim Henson had directed the movie, and families and critics were expecting the great Muppet heist again. But they ended up getting something much darker. And this is so depressing when this ha- when we look back at these movies that we love. When we talk about them today. Universally love, though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't know anybody who hates Labyrinth. And, and if I, I do, I won't know them for long. Yeah. But even Fifth Element, it's one of those movies that I don't know a single person in my friend's group mm-hmm. that I can talk to. I oh, talk I know to, several. I, I talk to a lot of people outside my friend's group yeah. because that's what I do. But everyone, Labyrinth, it's Labyrinth. Everyone loves Labyrinth. Labyrinth. I I still have on my bookcase in my office of like, you know, weird geek things. I have an original VHX copy of Labyrinth with the original artwork on it uh, of of hers in the the white gown. I'm I'm absolutely positive that I'm sure in the long run, that movie did not lose money. Well, I know that (laughs) it, it was popular enough that they're doing a reboot. Yeah. No. No, that is as of last year they were talking about that's a reboot. been squashed because that's it's like written in the contracts for this movie originally. There was not going to be ever be there is a graphic novel version of a sequel, but it's horrible. It's like completely bad. There was a TV series that was based off of Labyrinth. Also, I what I'm thinking, that it was only like three or four episodes. Pretty sure I've read that there was a reboot. We'll look it up later. Okay, but <laughs> production costs. Sorry, yeah, no, no, that's all right. I was just kind of wondering also yeah. with. The critics and everyone that was expecting this movie not to be dark is like, did you not see the Dark Crystal? I mean, if you don't see Fozzie the Bear and you know Piggy and all the regular Muppet characters, this is why I don't give a shit about Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, this is why well, I don't this was give way a shit before about Rotten Tomatoes. This was you know Siskel and Ebert saying oh, it's, they it's tore horror. it apart. Oh, they did. Yeah. They yeah. tore it apart hard. In fact, didn't like. Cisco tried to blackball it or something. Something along those lines. Yeah. The story a, goes. Yeah. The international box office return, non-US, was only one hundred eighty-two thousand dollars and change in that month. Are, is this for real? Yes. Are you I'm, sure you're looking at the right? No, movie? I'm. I confirmed this through several sites. Jesus on Christ. my mining. I know for a fact that there is not a woman in my age group in the US who doesn't have this DVD. I. That is a fact. I can confirm. Yeah, yeah I'm that. sad that there's no data on that. It just seems like something that we find from everything else. Yeah, yeah. It always be well, like, oh, it made up its gross thing. return over 20 years in DVD sales. That's my I thing, and it wasn't a VHS. There. I've bought three DVDs myself, so I can confidently say a hundred dollars of it is mine. Same here. You know, <laughs> easily. The commercial failure had demoralized Henson to the extent that his son Brian remembered the time of the film's release as one of the most difficult periods of his father's life. Uh, and I kind of got the impression in reading interviews that it almost made him suicidal. But i that's just what I was reading between like the subtext. Hmm. It, would, it was Jim Henson's last feature film uh, that he directed before his death in 1990. And it, was, it, it bothered him so hey, much. Hey, well done, Siskel and Ebert. Look what you did. But he was happy to find out just before, just before his passing that there was a huge cult following with the VHS and, and then going into... Well, it wasn't really worn any DVDs in 1990, so... Looking on eBay right now, there is an entire subset of cosplay that can be bought oh, yeah. just to be Jareth. I mean... there's oh, there, yeah. there is a ball, the Goblin King Masquerade... Oh, yeah. ...that started, I think, 10 or 12 years I'm, I'm, ago. 
Uh, regardless of how it did at the box office and how stupid the general portion of humanity is, lawful evil, <laughs> um, I, I would have to say that they just, it was ahead of its time. I would agree with that. And much like we, we always go back to the fifth element in this podcast. And I think this, we it, always will. It, it was it, the first it, episode. It always, I think that that's, that's a bar standing, a bar setting movie. And this is one of those movies that comes up to it just in a different day. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Other movies that were released in the month of June 1986, what this had to contend with, Invaders from Mars, the remake, if you guys remember that one. Nope. Raw Deal, the Schwarzenegger mob movie. Nope. Okay. Nope. Space Camp. Yes. Yes. All Saw right. Because I was going to Space Camp next year. Did you actually go to Space Camp? I did. Oh, that's cool. Did they put that. you in the spinny thing? They put me in the spinny thing. I think it had Joaquin did you Phoenix throw up? in it. We jumped out of planes. I did not throw up. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yep. We've, we've, I'm sure we've all seen um, oh yeah. yeah, Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School. Yep, which is a great nope. movie. Ah, really? No, I hate Polly Shore in any incarnation. He's not in that movie. Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, is that's what we call Polly a metaphor. Shore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in any age, in any generation, there is a Polly Shore, and Rodney Dangerfield was him. Uh, the Manhattan Project. If you guys remember that sci-fi gem, uh, I actually it's one that I actually do like, and The Karate Kid Part Two. I didn't see it in the theater, no. no I, I did it with my I, parents. Oh, I did. I was obsessed with the Karate Kid series. And I actually grew up with uh, with a dad who was a martial arts instructor. Oh. And, yeah, he, we the Karate Kid movies were just, we're just not He's like, if I ever catch you doing that. He's going to go Rex Kwando in your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, man. Movies that were released the same weekend as Labyrinth, however. Your favorite actor. Careful now. Your very, very favorite actor. If Kevin you say Kevin Costner. An American anthem. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard anybody strangled with a microphone cord? Uh, Running Scared with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal, which was a good movie. It was a, they were, it was a, it was a detective cop buddy movie. So you've got a comedian Next. and a tap dancer that were in a cop movie. Because Gregory Hines was, was a prolific tap dancer. Uh, I need to solve a crime. It didn't do anything Who, for the movie. You get just, choice of one yeah. partner. And that then, partner is a tap dancer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, come on. Next. And then Ruthless People with Bette Midler, Judge Reinhold, and Danny DeVito. That was a pretty good movie. Yeah, it was a funny movie. So it couldn't succeed against that pile of dreck minus Ferris Bueller. Exactly. That's sad. Yes. That's easily the best movie of the list. <laughs> Agreed. I, I mean, I Fer- Ferris Bueller's Day Off yeah. was, it was a Good coming of age movie for the eighties. Fantastic. Have you, have you ever tried watching? There's a cut of Ferris Bueller's Day Off that takes out all of the fourth wall breaking. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's all of the stuff in Ferris Bueller, but it cuts out without all him of the looking at the, the camera. Yeah. the camera, it's a thousand percent better. Really? Yep. Interesting. I really like that part of it. It huh. completely changes the movie and makes it a lot more fucked up. And you realize even more so how much of a complete asshole. Ferris Bueller. Oh, of course. Yeah. The music I really liked. I mean, not the David Bowie music. I mean, that's that's by itself. That's the soundtrack. That's different. But the score. Oh, right. I yeah. really liked was done by Trevor Jones. And yeah. we, we, he's done a piece of music that you and I have talked about. We've actually talked about it a few times on the podcast. He did Last Last Mohicans. Sweet. Last Mohicans. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Also really well scored. Yes. From hell. That's about. The only good thing I can say about that movie. I like that's a guilty pleasure movie. It, it oh, is. I agree with Dusty. That is a guilty pleasure <laughs> movie. I know it's not. I'm not good. that guilty. I know. Well, you've, <laughs> I tried. Lived a blameless life. I, on the other hand, have not. Uh, <laughs> I, I got my guilt. The, the Johnny Depp from Hell, 
which is a good movie. It's not a Tim Burton movie. I don't I, remember I, that one. Maybe I, it's thought, got, I'm getting it confused. It's with got the, Sir with Ian Holm in it. With, How do you with guys the, with the one with the he's, book? He's the that that it's based off of that. No, no, no. The one where Johnny Depp is going after the Hell Book. Oh, that one. Um, yeah, the, he's like a collector of rare books or whatnot. I'm getting that confused in my that's mind. That's the the the. Uh, the oh, ninth, from Hell was gate. the, the gate. From yeah. Hell was gate. the Jack the Ripper movie, yes. right? Oh, yeah. 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 Sir Ian okay. Holm that plays. Oh, I have seen the, that. Okay. Jack the Ripper. Spoiler. Uh, I just killed the movie for you. Dark Crystal. He also scored, obviously. Yeah. Dark City. He did Dark City. Oh, which yeah. is a good movie. I remember that. If you take the time, the extra thirty minutes to watch the director's cut, it makes so much more sense. I've only ever seen the basic one, and I liked it. I like that it didn't make sense. Ah, it was okay. just weird. And then one of my favorite movies, actually, uh, Excalibur. Oh, I do movie. love that movie. So I'd like to take a couple of minutes and go into some of the trivia before we dive down the game hole. I'll do it. That's all right? All right. What awesome. you got? Well, we talked a little bit about the bulge a little bit ago. <laughs> <laughs> the battle of the bulge. The battle of the, the bulge. The battle in our hearts. Yeah, that, that puberty-inducing bulge for a lot of people in our age bracket that saw the movie. What was wrong with you guys? <laughs> wasn't, no, no, no. I, I okay, was so, open to many things as so a kid. I went out. I was, I was, I mean, the... That, no, that, it, didn't, that, it that wasn't puberty-inducing for me. White shirt she was wearing? No, that's, no, that's no, what that was, ignited me. Oh, I was madly in love with Sarah. Jennifer was yeah. that, she yeah. was my puberty inducing? This was long before ass to ass. <laughs> it's now it's dawning on him. See the the the, the dawning. I don't want to think about that awful <laughs> fucking movie. Uh, Shh, this is not that never. movie. This is not that movie. Let's never do that movie. Instead. No. I'm putting a veto on that. I'm fine, fine with that. Okay. So Jareth was also, aside from the bulge being designed by by Froud, Jareth had also designed Jareth, not Jareth, sorry, Froud had designed Jareth to also be a romantic, but at the same time he wanted him to be a contemporary rock star complete with a leather jacket. So you do see that throughout all the, basically all the costume changes that... that yeah. That the Goblin King goes through. He goes through the the poofy Freddie Mercury style of clothing as he when he's the owl to the you know um, Judas Priest leather uh, rock star Rob Halford. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see how much was changed there. Also, if you notice, the short staff that he carries was considered a swagger stick. Yes. Which is also very similar to what Freddie Mercury used in his performances. That crystal ball is supposed to be a microphone. I thought it was basically a writing crop. That's what a swagger stick. Yeah, oh, swagger okay. stick. Yeah, just sort of added to the whole flutter heart thing. Yes. of all those experimental young ladies watching the movie for the first time. His armor was also a nod to fifteenth century. Fifteenth cinch. Cinch. Yes. <laughs> His armor was a nod to the fifteenth century knights. A little bit of armor that he did wear. Yeah. On the tech side of things. This movie actually like makes my techie senses go insane because it was filmed in 70 millimeter, which yeah. I yeah, love. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I could do a whole podcast it's, on it's, 70 it's millimeter. So, it's so per- it's it's a personal lens. Yeah. And and what and a lot of people for those that don't know and and I'm I'm going to go really short on this because like I said I could the do a smaller whole, the number the wider it is. Yeah, I could 70 do 70 millimeter is is Damn near a portrait lens. Yes, and I could I could go a whole podcast on this, but the reason why I love seventy millimeter so much is that seventy millimeter has a vastly higher resolution than the yes. standard thirty five millimeter for the motion picture format, and it's the film is actually sixty five millimeters wide, 
But for projection purposes, the original 65 millimeter is printed on 70 70 millimeter. The additional five millimeter are four magnetic strips for six tracks of sound. Yeah. That's why I love it. So as a tech nerd, it's fucking awesome. Did you guys know that Maurice Sendak was not pleased with the similarities between his work and the movie? What the hell is a Mari Sendak? Mari Sendak wrote Where the Wild Things Are. He was Okay, not... that, that's that's honestly fair because a lot of the goblins had that feel to him. Yep, and and actually the he what he was most upset about wasn't Where the Wild Things Are, it was his his story outside over there. So the lawyers had advised the Henson production to stop production on the movie and threatened legal consequences. I'm glad he didn't. At the same time, I don't think his case was big enough to be litigious. Because clearly he owned goblins. Yeah. Exactly. That's like... I mean, there, there, there are similarities. He's, he's not wrong, but I don't think it's crossing the line it's into like, yeah, plagiarism Tolkien or... Uh, owns elves. Or IP theft. But in, in the credits, there is a note that says... And I quote, Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak. At that point, Sendak withdrew his objection, but he did complain about it for years, apparently. Yeah, so, that's that's fair. Yeah. I mean, that was really close. But it, it was. If, if the story was in any way similar, I, I, would, I would see that being... Uh, George Lucas did co-edit this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. It was interesting to find out that he got a hold of it and didn't screw it up. But Jim Henson. Oh, this was still in his heyday, though. Jim Henson said that the he he tightened it because the cuts between his dialogue he would leave too much space, whereas Lucas would cut those little half second here, quarter second here to tighten it up a little bit. I know how that feels. <laughs> I know. I'm sure that you do. Do so, you? Long pause. <laughs> After the movie wrapped and everything was put away, put into storage, and everything was was set aside. As happens with a lot of movies and set pieces, some of them get auctioned off on now eBay or go through Christie's or whatnot. Star Wars has done a big thing with that. They've auctioned off a lot of parts. Star Trek The Next Generation auctioned off parts all the time. Everybody does it so they can make a little bit more money you know, for the production company or whoever was had the stock and stuff. Hoggle apparently got lost. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Hoggle got lost. Nightmare fuel. <laughs> Hoggle got lost and was ended up in a baggage claim area in Alabama, in uh, an unclaimed baggage center in Scottsboro, Alabama. That's how I, we do it. I know you, you're from Alabama, so where where is this? I've in, never heard of this place. Okay, so it must have been a very small yeah. airport. A worker unpacking a large wooden crate, he f- freaked out because he opened it. It was not airtight. So Hoggle was decaying and oh, rotting. Oh, poor Hoggle! And so, so it was like half of this mechanical jaw is like hanging down, and it's like some Five eyes. Nights at Freddy's <laughs> scary moment there. If the cool, you thing, know, you should put a picture of it in the link dump. Yes, that is okay. That is a scary yeah, on it, and I'll send it to you because the 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 airport. The cool thing about it because it wasn't just Hoggle that was in this crate. It was a lot of memorabilia from the movie also and like in an also like a, an original film pressing a vhs like certificates of authenticity the clothing everything for the hoggle uh costume so they have it in a display in a glass display case uh and it's come out and everything um like the henson company is certified it's saying this is actually hoggle yeah and please keep it bring people to have them come and look at it. it but so yeah, it's at the airport, it's still? at the airport in a big glass crap. case. Like if you next time I don't abandon your luggage, or it'll end <laughs> yeah. up like, like this like zombie if you, terminator. If you, if you go into like any high school and you see the trophy area, it's in a glass case like huh. that. 
And so I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, that is definitely nightmare fuel. It seems like something that somebody would have auctioned off. Maybe the airport would have auctioned it off to then see if somebody wanted to restore it. I think I think as it is, it's it's so good. It's it's yeah. too, got it's dipped too in the bog. Yeah. <laughs> it's, too, it's too good to fix. I made a comment about how you know a lot of studios will auction off stuff, and I made a comment about Star Trek, right? So I can link this movie directly to Star Trek: The Next Generation. You guys want to know how? Do you even care? Um, I, no, I was just searching my brain trying to figure out okay. the link. Go ahead. All right. So one of the choreographers for the film, her name is Cheryl McFadden. Uh, she also appears uncredited as one of the masked dancers in the ball scene, ballroom scene. A year after this film was put out, she starred in Star Trek: The Next Generation Gates. as Gates McFadden, playing Doctor Beverly Crusher. Ah. There were also two video games based on this movie. Were there? Yes, there that was. I did not know. In 1986, two video games based on the movie were released: one in Japan and one in the U.S. Labyrinth, the computer game for the Apple II and Commodore 64, was released here in the States. I had no idea. It was the very first graphic adventure game developed by Lucasfilm Games, and which later became LucasArts Lucas Arts, in yeah. 1990. In the game, the player has 13 real-time in-game hours to solve the dangerous labyrinth and thwart Jareth's plan. So move your pixel through the tunnel. Basically, right. yeah. It's kind of right. like uh, King's, the old King's yeah, Quest yeah. games. Yeah, basically. I, I, that's kind of the impression that I, I got. This is one of the favorite films of my childhood. Yeah. Like um let me let me think. The Star Wars okay. trilogy, the original. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Freaking uh Conan the Barbarian. Yes. And this are probably the movies I've watched the most mm-hmm. in my life. No, wait. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen are, is that, also That's in there. another really good one. But I, I came to Monty Python after this had already happened. Mm-hmm. I would say this is this is one of the the top five movies that I've watched rewatched in my whole life. It's it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It introduced me to David Bowie. Um, it 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 furthermore it it grew my love of uh, maquettes, mm-hmm. puppets, and very intricate and detailed set design, which I've tried in my own very small humble way to bring to all my projects since is just. This richly fleshed, highly detailed background that characters move through. You, you want it. I, I'm I'm just a fan of that level of intricacy. It's it's the difference between acting against, say, a set which is you know like Star Trekian uh, rocks, mm-hmm. and this set of that has its own internal logic. All the little houses have ladders leading up to it. There's planters underneath the windows. Whoever did all of the designing on this was a fucking genius for mm-hmm. the Goblin yeah. City. Well, it also creates that same effect that we've talked about with Valerian and also with Fifth Element. There's a whole world here. Oh, yeah. yeah. There are signs that other things are happening here. In fact, like at the beginning, she looks out across the labyrinth, but she kind of looks around. There's more to this world. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Than just that labyrinth. Oh yeah, and then, and yeah. and there's a lot of stuff going on that we, you know, as watchers or as readers, would love to know what's going yep. on to the guy to the little creatures that pick up the stones and turn them when she's marking yeah. for direction. Um, my one of my favorite characters is the the old guy towards the end with the with the ostrich on his head, the wise old guy like that falls worm. asleep. Yeah, the worm is good. Just a worm. Yeah. Oh, come on in, meet the missus. <laughs> Did you say hello? Nah, I said hello. Well, that's, that's, close that's enough. No, the 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 old the old character at the end when she when they come out of the oubliette, 
uh, when they crawl out of the oubliette, uh, where he's the, the that's not of, the end. That's like that's towards the third of the way through the movie. That's very early that's, on. That's even yeah. the damn doors are alive. I mean, yeah. it was it was a very alive world. And, the, his comment, yeah, you know, yeah. giving the the sage advice is sometimes going forward, you have to go back. Yeah. Uh, but I love the little quip by the 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 bird on his head um, when he falls asleep. Ah, oh, it's so stimulating being your head. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I there's not a part of this movie I didn't like that up to and including the the fury dance, furry dance, whatever. So the fire. Nathaniel, what were what were some of your what were your two th- your three favorite characters in the movie? Sir Didymus, Ambrosius. Can I say Sir Didymus again? And Ludo. Ludo. Definitely. Okay. What Definitely. about you, Matthew? Ambrosius uh, is King Arthur's father. You guys know that, right? Mm-hmm. I thought that was Uther Pendragon. What? I thought wasn't Arthur Pendragon, the son of Pendragon? They, they weren't Pendragons yet. Ambrosius is the roman name of the of the generals who were, who were left in england honestly i fucking hate anyway it was it was, it was it was a nice it was a nice yeah. nod to uh another legend which yeah, i was really a dog liked. he was a steed and somebody rode on him yep yeah, yeah, they're like supposed to look like legend. her dog from the beginning of the <laughs> yeah. movie too wasn't yeah. it the same dog in in the scenes where it was a real dog yeah. yes but then okay. the muffet Man, what dog dm doesn't like the arthurian legend <laughs> it's Boring and overdone. Oh. It, it's it it's one of and our Nathaniel first. Nathaniel just wiped out like half of our fan base right no, there. No, but the other I'll half realizes how this. awful it is. <laughs> no, I mean it's practically Game of Thrones. It's got incest. It's got and it's got betrayal. nothing but female <laughs> characters who are evil. Like all of the failures in Arthurian legend is basically caused by female characters. Yeah, but that's yeah. the time, man. I'm just I'm just not into it. It's eh. extremely. It's. I don't like it. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't hold yeah. it up to like modern scrutiny because it it doesn't, you know. But uh, I mean, it's is a touchstone for. Yeah. What were your three favorite characters? You can't just go around expecting the weird ex- supreme <laughs> executive power. <laughs> just cut some water um, top, flung a sword at you. Um, I I agree. Sir Didymus is my favorite character. I want to know his story. Interesting. I you want a backstory into him. Um. Who did he make this promise to? I would say to? Sir Didymus, Gareth. I hated Hoggle. I don't trust betrayers. The Hoggle reminded me of my grandfather my, on my mom's side. He just looked like him. I, I don't trust betrayers. It happens once you're done. No, I, I understand um, that. I'm just saying he, the, the look of him, it looked like my granddad as a kid. I was like, that's my grandpa. Ludo. I'm going to say the worm. The worm? <laughs> so we've got the worm, Sir Didymus. I liked him. He was just this, this random guy who popped up and... Just had a nice little conversation and scurried off to tea. Did he I have mean, a scarf? Yes. Yes. Come on in. Scarf Ludo. and a mohawk, basically. Yeah. yeah. He was fantastic. Yeah, Ludo was kind of a non-entity. He was kind of like a pet. I'll, I'll go with those. Okay. I think for me, um, I like the the old guy, you know, with the with the ostrich on his head. I forget the name. Uh, probably my Frank Oz actually did the puppeteering on that one, but did not do the voice. Uh, Sir Didymus also, I think, is a. I think everyone has Sir Didymus is probably one. He's of their favorites. the most beloved character. I think he is so. so. Just especially charming. when 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 Ludo and Didymus are fighting, and then he like bounces back into the ah! into the fray. <laughs> well, I think also at the end of the movie when she's looking in the mirror, and they're like, "If you ever need us," his oh, statement yeah. of "If you ever need us," yeah. yes, his felt the most touching. Yeah. Just the tone of his voice, the, the way the words came out. I was just like, yeah. oh, I need you right now, Sir <laughs> Give me a hug. The the little bit of, there was a change on that. In the initial script, all of the characters were outside of the window, 
and yeah. then they faded away. They didn't come in for a party, uh, and then it got changed into a more happy ending. So the window, the mirror, and then turning into a you know a of celebration in there. I like the party ending better. Yeah, so do yeah. I. Does anybody want to play Scrabble? Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I've, I've did all my mining on it's this. It's good because it's a party adventure. It is. But we'll get into that in a second. What do you say we break, do the rest Try of this? Try this up? Yeah. All right. Cool. Hi, everyone. This is your favorite host, Matthew. This week's episode is brought to you by Guardian Games, who we are proud to have as our sponsor. Guardian Games is Portland's largest gaming store. They have almost every game you can think of, be it role-playing, board game, card games, miniature games, even video games. They also have a ton of gaming-related material and some pretty neat swag. I mean, the D20 fuzzy dice that go in your mirror, that's good stuff. If, you, uh, <laughs> if you're 21, uh, you can have a drink in the back at the Critical Sip. Booze makes gaming better. Always has, always will. There's free games back there. You'll love it. Uh, they also have a friendly and incredibly knowledgeable staff, and they are the hub of a diverse and friendly gaming community. Um, if you're in Portland, you definitely want to go to Guardian Games. Well, we are back from the break, and we're going to be bringing to you some discussion of ways that you can now play the concepts laid forth in this movie at your gaming table. First thing I want to identify here is uh, we all liked this movie. Oh, yeah. We yeah, all love this movie. That's a given. Yeah. Yeah. This, this movie is close and personal to each and every one of us. Yeah. If you don't like this movie, just... You're no friend of mine. Yeah. So yeah. let's <laughs> talk about this love that you have for the movie. What about the movie? Now, not, 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 not specific characters, not specific quotes. It's intricacy, it's detail, it's world. I'm, I'm a fan of world building, and this is a fantastic world. Yeah, absolutely. The, on top of that, just the imagination that goes into it, being yeah. a writer, diving, finding out around that time that that's what I wanted to do was write, and then having that movie in front of me, it so, was just another door to a, a whole new world. Okay, world building. World building yeah. right there at the top of the list. Building an intricate world, something that appears alive where the GM can come up with. There's going to be a heavy amount of improv if you're running a game like this. So the GM and I think the players as well would all have to be adding little elements to things. Like, oh, great. To me, yeah. you want to run a game based on Labyrinth then you want to run something that has much more of a collaborative interface. Agreed. And I have to say, there is not a Palladium game that fits this. <laughs> I just want to make that very clear. I cannot think of a system worse for Labyrinth than, than Palladium. Palladium. That's a first, our friends. <laughs> yeah. That's a first. But pushing beyond that, sorry, the Palladium thing got me again. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> The reason is Palladium is strict. There's a heavy element of open-endedness in kind of the old school versions of Palladium. I thought old you were pushing D &D, beyond <laughs> Old school. Any of these more, these older, rigid, yeah. structured games and that, that I don't think would work with something more open and weird you, you, and zany. You don't like want to look world. up the details of a talking door. What are yeah. the creatures that flip the rocks? It's just, yeah. it's a, it's, it, it, it has to be mind-numbing at that loose. point fantastic example you want yeah. to run a kind of a game where your heroine can be hiding in a hedge seeing something happen and a rock just rolls up and taps her on the foot that would yeah. be great right where it's needed mm -hmm. something where that is just 
part of the rules of the land, that the unexpected is going to happen, and frequently in ways that are convenient to what you need at that exact moment in time. Yeah. So, improv. Something with a lot of improvisational world building on the part of both the GM and the players. You could even run the kind of game that doesn't have a GM. Have any of you played GM-less games? No. No. They are a lot of fun, and some of the topics that I'm going to go into in a little bit encourage more of an open storytelling experience. I suppose, does White Wolf count? They, they, I mean, they have well, someone the storyteller. Kind of... The storyteller is just their artsy word for GM. Yeah. Okay. That's the loosest yeah. game I've ever played that counted as a White Wolf game. did a good job convincing a whole lot of people in the 90s that they weren't to get traditional, outside. but it was a really <laughs> traditional good game. Point. Good yeah. point. Got us out of the basement. One yeah. thing for me yeah. is that sense of mystery and wonder. Like that that everything isn't just weird, it's really weird. It's really unique. Every encounter is a little over the top. But there's always something behind it, and you don't really know what that is. There's an element of mystery as into, okay, I'm here and I'm talking to this person, but what mm-hmm. the hell am I actually talking to? Right. There's that mystery, the what's behind that next curve in the labyrinth? What can I trust these people that I'm working with? So there's always that sense of mystery there. A lot of games don't have that. So for me, to run something like this, I'd want something that encourages that, that isn't codified that doesn't have a rule for everything. Right. You had your hand like you wanted to... I was just scratching my mouth. Oh. <laughs> I'm growing in a mustache. Uh, this is an audio podcast, so you can't see this, but... Yeah, so, my mustache itches. Not even diving into gaming systems. Mm-hmm. Here are some ways that you could take any other game, any game out there, and labyrinthify it to give it that sense of mystery, that sense of wonder, to bring in a, a really creative world... To just jump in there and go with it. Mm -hmm. One, I think, crucial would be to have a good riddle book on hand. If you're not that good with riddles and you're not that good coming up with like creative puzzles, she encounters them over and over Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Yeah. And something like that could be really handy to you to have at the table. There's a great Middle Earth one. There is a really good Middle Earth one. One that is coming to mind specifically... I used to have this book called The Children's Almanac of Words at Play. It's this big, thick, yellow book. And I had it since I was a little kid, and I still have it today. I have pulled that book off my shelf many times to pull out word riddles, to pull out little logic games, any just playful little tricks and whimsical things to throw at players Mm -hmm. that seem, you know, when you're looking at them as an adult, just kind of reading them, these are all very childlike but they're fun, and yeah. it's the kind of things that you could throw at a character that's supposed to be coming of age. Yeah. Another thing that you would want to do is come up with ways that you can push beyond the three dimensions. Uh, a, a fantastic example of what's happening in this movie is Escher at the end. Yeah. Clear, like, that whole stage at the end was outside of dimensional physics. It was, it was unknown. It was unexpected, and it really hammered in that whole mystery Wonder and an interesting world where things that you're coming for don't matter. Or, sorry, the things that you bring to the (laughs) table yourself aren't necessarily true and probably don't apply. It's reactions, yeah. Yeah. You had an idea, Matthew. You wanted to talk about a campaign? Like, you you had a story. So, one thing I've been trying to do is bring just a a bare bones campaign to uh, every movie that we do. Mm -hmm. And in this one, uh, especially since 
uh, Dusty was talking about the windows mm-hmm. uh, that were vaguely Harry Potter-esque that got cut out. It, it gives hints to a, a much bigger world. Yeah, it does. It and really does. I, for this campaign to work, I'd like to uh, to speculate upon the fact that uh, Jareth is not the only power in this world. So this campaign is called the Fox King. Uh, this does not center around a uh, a human. This is actually playing the creature's that you find within the world of the labyrinth. Okay, that sounds interesting. Um, uh, so here we go. Legends tell not only of the Goblin King, but of a High King of the Fox People, which is Sir Didymus's kind. The players, which can be of any race in the movie, discover his existence on an ancient scroll that a garbage hoarding goblin, uh, hmm. such as the one who had gathered up all the things and was carrying them on her back, uh, will trade them for. She requires a precious thing from each of the PCs before she'll surrender the scroll. Uh, the scroll, once the PCs have it in the possession, tells of the Fox King, who is basically the foil of the Goblin King, uh, another major power in the world of the Labyrinth. It's, uh, it's kind of like the ink to his yang. Uh, he is less powerful individually than the Goblin King because he has no magic powers, no ability to travel. But what he does have, uh, he commands the armies of his people, which are the Fox Knights, which is what Sir Didymus is. Um, so you have a, a very small but very doughty and fierce army <laughs> of of foxes riding on on sheepdogs. They all bite at your feet, and they are all very well regimented. Think of them as a as a military unit. Mm-hmm. Okay, which when you think about it is actually fairly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Armored foxes riding on dogs with lances and swords and whatnot, mm-hmm. and and bearing teeth. Yeah, they they are they are more valiant, more intelligent, and better fighters than the goblin forces. Um, now, the scroll tells the story of the imprisonment of their king by Jareth. The players can seek to restore the balance to the world of the labyrinth by going on a quest to free this king. Now, Jareth has imprisoned the fox king's mind in a crystal globe for 10 years. Mm. During that 10 years, the king believes he has been uh, fighting a losing war against the goblins. He, he has spent the last 10 years fighting this unstoppable tide of goblins. He, Jareth has basically put him in a nightmare. Mm-hmm. In reality, he has been sleeping in a chamber in the Goblin King's Citadel. The party you know, here's an idea. Huh. What if instead he's actually Sir Didymus, who has been here mindlessly guarding this fucking bridge in the bog <laughs> of eternal stench? Just this bridge here in the middle of nowhere. Why, why is Sir Didymus there doing that in the first place? Unless it was a I, I mean, that's good, yeah. but it doesn't have a storming the castle feel to it. Yeah, which... I, I think the party should I, have I, to do. Yeah, I, I think storming the castle would be good. Uh, the party must enter the Goblin City, find the Fox King's body, and then find the Goblin King to gain access to his soul. The Goblin King will transport the party to the Fox King's dream, hoping to trap them inside the, body, inside the dream there, uh, where they must completely win the battle to, for the dream to end. It's not a, you don't have any power over me. This is visceral. You, you literally have to beat everybody to make it happen, these endless armies of goblins. So you're going to have to figure out a way to do that. Uh, After the PCs have accomplished this, uh, they must fight their way clear of the goblin city with the king in tow still weak from his imprisonment through through the labyrinth and across the crazy world of the movie to reach the land of the Fox Knights, which I... I've always pictured as kind of uh, more sylvan, you know, Mm -hmm. heavily forested, small stone castles and whatnot, a few clearings. Uh, Once the king is finally back in charge of his homeland, uh, the party gets a quick break to breathe and resupply before Jareth 
at the head of his goblin armies, arrives to lay waste to the Fox Kingdom and end his interference once and for all and assure his own ascendancy. And I think that would be a fun campaign. I like that. That would be fun. That does sound fun. That also sounds significantly more violent than a kind of game that I would run based on I I did write it. (laughs) (laughs) There was really only the one fight, and it was a comical fight, the the fight in the Goblin City. No, it wasn't. Uh, Do you remember the... uh the goblin crawling, broken and wounded to his buddy. Yeah, but I yeah, mean, I mean, it, it, there's very there was, dark elements. There to was, this movie. there were there some. Really was. The yeah. large amount of that fight was was played up for laughs. Yeah, and so, and some of it could be too. But uh, I have to say that I, I I think it's internally consistent. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about games that we can do this in. Then the first game that somebody actually suggested to me was Earth Dawn. Mm-hmm. Taking hmm. it back to more traditional yeah. gaming. Earth Dawn, I had to think about it for a bit there. I wasn't initially convinced until I remembered Earth Dawn had a boxed set for a city called Parlane. Yeah, I remember that. So Earth Dawn, if you are unfamiliar with it, is a post-apocalyptic fantasy game that was made by FASA in the 90s. And it is actually the historical... Sorry, the narrative precursor to Shadowrun. Yeah. Whereas Shadowrun is a modern, if not futuristic, cyberpunk and magic fantasy game. Shadowrun is in an era that that setting refers to as the sixth world, which, of course, our modern age being considered the fifth world. Earth Dawn is considered the fourth age. Oh, okay. Precursor. Earth Dawn's age was essentially coming to an end but something stopped it. Something weird and strange prevented the apocalypse from completely wiping out everything. So Earth Dawn has this phantom city that was, uh, in order to stave off the apocalypse, all of these cities and towns, they built these underground layers called Cares. Well, in the city of Parlanth, they decided that instead of going underground, they were going to warp the city outside of time and space. They weaved some ritual of magic that made the entire rest of the world, nay, the universe, forget it ever existed, which meant that it was pulled out of time, it was pulled out of reality into this pocket dimension. Well, eventually horrors came and fucked it up too. The magic didn't hold as well as the magicians thought it would. And then when Parlaint returned to the world Mm -hmm. at the end of this apocalypse... It was essentially one massive unknown labyrinth of weird shit. And Parlanth is a fun city that I think you could totally venture through. Yeah. I I have a, a quick token that I want to put in, just as an honorable, not as a okay. serious mention. Uh, GURPS did a um, Discworld, Terry Pratchett. Discworld, just by world setting, is... Oh, that would be a good uh, idea. ...is actually fairly close to the world of, of Labyrinth. Uh, both in its humor, though it is much darker, and in the types of creatures that inhabit it. You you could possibly run it in GURPS. Now, I know we agreed not to you use... You can do anything in GURPS. Yeah, yeah. but there there is an actual like bound copy of, of I, Discworld. I own that. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I, th- I think that would be a, a setting, probably not the rule set you want to use, but setting-wise, that, that, that could be a viable choice. I could, yeah, if you're running a Discworld game, you could totally pop a labyrinth down in there. Yeah. Discworld has its own laws of the way reality works, so you could adjust things around a little bit, but I, I could see it fitting in very well. Yeah. 
back to Earthdawn, Earthdawn has characters that are, by nature, magical adepts. Everything you do is done with magic. Like, when a thief picks a lock, a thief doesn't pick out lock picks and then manually pick it. A thief mm-hmm. will pick out the lock picks and then magically move them around in the air. Every skill, every action, a warrior doesn't just swing a sword, they put some magic into it. So it becomes like this beautiful act of bravery backing up their violence. Earth I, would, on, I would abuse that so hard as a player. <laughs> I, yeah, so would I. It's a it's a very balanced game. It's a very fun game. Uh, it has a lot in similarity to old school D&D with some new school attitudes. So if you're into Earth Dawn, you could totally take the Goblin King and throw him down in par length, and that would be a fantastic adventure. I just gave away all my Earth Dawn stuff in my recent move to my buddy Matthew. No relation. Right. <laughs> and Matthew, I hope you're listening, and I hope you run an Earth Dawn game in that City of Par Length box set that you now have. Another game that was mentioned to me was one that I need to read someday. It's called 13th Age. Anybody? I'm not no. familiar with no, it. No, not at all. Across my radar. So 13th Age is... Okay, so it's a game that... It's a big-ass book. And one of my things right now is I am at a certain age that I no longer have time to read big-ass RPG books. So I hope that someday I can convince somebody to run a demo game for me <laughs> so I know more about it hands-on. But it plays a lot like 4th Ed D&D, but streamlined down into an actual role-playing game hybrid. So hybrid of role-playing with the more fast-paced, codified action. Mm-hmm. It's got some escalating die mechanics so that every die, every round of combat, a die goes up, and that die affects things that everybody do. It's like a bonus. So round one, everybody has a plus one to damage, and round two, everybody has a plus two to damage. So it just kind of pushes things forward so that yeah. combat doesn't drag out. I don't know so much about it, but when I was asking around on my circles, people were like, 13th age, 13th age, 13th age. Apparently, somebody ran a very successful convention game based on Labyrinth using 13th Age. Oh, really? So, going to your campaign idea, Matthew, I think 13th Age could be a fantastic game to run that very thing in. I think it's got the combat system, from what I've heard, that could pull it off. Apparently, it moves really fast, so I think you could get those battles done in record time. Yeah. I'd be interested in playing that. So, if anybody knows 13th Age and wants to run a game, let us know. Another game, and I mentioned this one last time, and it's in a box. Otherwise, I would have brought it. It's Everway. Everway is the visual role-playing game. Oh, yeah. You've discussed this before. Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everway's whole thing is going into unknown vistas, going into mysterious places, and dealing with new laws of reality. It could work wonderfully. You don't even... Everway's mechanics are so simple that you don't even really need to adapt anything. You just get your characters together and you step through the portal and boom, you're in the labyrinth. Now go. Everway can pull it off. Everway is hard to find now. It's an expensive game Mm -hmm. to find a complete box set. It's been out of print for a long time. But if you have it, right on. Maybe PDF it. Is it on drive-thru? Everway relies heavily on cards. I don't know if there was ever an official PDF made for it. Uh, I've seen PDFs of it. I don't know if they are official. Right. I think somebody might have just scanned their books in. Right. Aside from that, though, any game, in my opinion, that has more of a lighthearted tone, friendly fantasy games, there was one that was kickstarted a few years ago called Ryutama. It's a Japanese game. It is essentially the, the Studio Ghibli. Yeah, the Studio Ghibli game. 
that lighthearted Studio Ghibli style fantasy. And you know, Labyrinth is in many ways, at least pending after all those many script rewrites, Labyrinth is in many ways a lighthearted fantasy. Everybody comes together and dances in the room at the yeah. end. And, you know, most of the things, most of the puzzles are resolved through comedy. Like when she throws the rock to free Ludo, she throws them and then they start biting each other in the butt with these things. Yeah. And it, a lot of it's very comical. A lighthearted fantasy game like Ryutama, where your characters are on an adventure. They are venturing forth together. There isn't, there is combat, but the combat is like so downplayed. Mm -hmm. Like instead, you come against a troll and the troll wants to start wants to eat you you outsmart the troll okay or right. you work with the troll it doesn't encourage you to draw your sword and whack draw away. your sword and hit it until its points are diminished yeah so i think a light-hearted game could do it something that focuses on the quest and the journey rather than the action so what you got i brought two it took me a while to figure mm -hmm. out which one i wanted to showcase as number one so I'm going to start with what I consider the runner-up. Okay. The runner-up is Meridian. It is a story game by my good friend Christian Griffin here in Portland, Oregon. Meridian was kickstarted a while ago. I got a copy from him myself. I brought it and spread it out here on the table. Oh, okay. That's what we're looking at here? Meridian is essentially the story game based on a journeyer going into a magical world that they've never heard of or been to before. They encounter a number of potential companions. The world is full of mysterious locations, such as the Midnight Conservatory, the Scarlet Masquerade, the Steamboat of Fortune, and the Whispering Court. So those of you who can't see us, as this is an audio podcast, we have a whole bunch of cards spread over the table in various stacks. Some of the ones you just handed us of all these places are rather large cards, slightly smaller than a postcard. Meridian is not necessarily a role-playing game so much as it is a story game. Uh -huh. There is somebody that takes the role of the game master, which this game refers to as the guide. Mm -hmm. The guide sets the stage, and they lead the story. They introduce everything, and they go through a series of beats. The guide also uses these location cards, and the location cards you can see are there's two cards for each location. Uh -huh. The first one talks about the rules of the location. For example, uh, you're, you've stepped into this world as the journeyer. You've uh, begun to kind of introduce to the story that's building around you, and you're introduced to this first location of the Moonlight Market. Now, each location has rules that you cannot break unless you choose to break them with one of your cards. Mm -hmm. And that can alter how you are perceived in the world around you. That can alter the way that the story flows. If the story flows with you becoming less of a hero and more of a darker force of change in the world, or something of a you know happy-go-lucky protagonist who's here to fight their, against their demons and overcome and, and beat the Goblin King. Right. For example, the Moonlight Market, the more you search through the wares the more you discover things from your past. If you steal anything, the guards will know, and a deal cannot be sealed with the restless collector in bad faith. The rest of it's open-ended. So again, it's a storytelling game. You've got the game master, the guide, who's so, leading you through, okay. the, through it. Now you've got other people playing the game as well, and they play the role of what are called touches. And a touch is essentially another storyteller who can affect the game in certain ways. They have rules on how they do it, they can draw cards, and they can take on temporary roles of companions, such as the Seeker, 
the connection, the stalker, the troublemaker, and the unbound. And each of these has their own ways that they can influence Now, are the story. these cards passed out to everyone sitting at the table, or how, how does this... When you this... sit down at the table, one person is going to take the guide, and mm-hmm. the guide has three cards. One person is going to take a journeyer, and there's different themed journeys. Christian recommends, if this is your first time playing, you start with a theme of defiance. And defiance, again, it's three cards, and each is like a stage of the story that you go through. And then you have the touches, and the touches are kind of open-ended rules, so it's up to five players for this game. All right. It essentially tells the story of a human coming into this world, this magical world, Meridian, experiencing parts of this world, coming up against a final antagonist, overcoming that antagonist and deciding whether or not they can come back to the world and whether or not their memories go with them. Mm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. It's very open-ended. It's it's a very collaborative game. There isn't a conflict mechanic so much as rolling dice. Instead, what you have on the second card of each location, you will eventually come to what is called the nexus. And the nexus of every location is like a person or a thing or a theme that you have to overcome to move beyond the location that you've been exploring so it's a, and role-playing. basically playing. a series of puzzles. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of role-playing to it. Yeah. I like you, it, though. You actually... We don't just play a card and you play a card mm-hmm. and then he plays a card then I play a card kind of thing. There's a lot of conversation that happens and the conversation guides what cards that you play mm-hmm. and vice versa. You can play a card from the main deck, uh, bubbles floating past, carrying tiny passengers or prisoners. You can play that in and that becomes a theme in the scene. Okay. Once three come out, you now have these cards that you can use to try and resolve the scene. So finally, here, getting back to it, there's two ways to resolve the scene. Well, actually, there's three ways to resolve the scene. Your journeyer has their own way to resolve a scene built in. That is the selfish way. That is kind of, you, can, you can always go that way, but doing so could negatively affect the end of your story. Okay. You might not ever get to come back to Meridian, or you might forget about Meridian, or, or mm-hmm. whatever world that you decide. You don't have to call it Meridian. The game just calls it Meridian because it's called Meridian. Or you can follow one of these alternate paths out. On the key side, you find something in the collection that grabs a tight hold of you, but the collector would never part with it. Maybe it's something previously yours or a loved one that you thought long lost. You steal it and run. And on the scales, you trade away a most prized, priced possession. This is something of irreplaceable emotional value to you, your only remaining memento of a loved one, the last piece of your lost home, the memory of your first love. Are your personal memories considered like a currency? or You can bring them in if this is a personal story for you. Wow. Yeah. Odd. I dig that. Yeah. this ge- I've seen this game played at conventions, mm-hmm. and I've seen people crying when they play it. It can get deep. Or it can be, you know, a magical Miyazaki adventure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, but this game is meant to emulate Labyrinth, yeah. Mirror Mask, any of those, ki- uh, The Wizard of Oz, any of those stories where you know a lone human traveler heads into another magical world and goes on a journey, encounters a number of weird companions, mm-hmm. uses strange esoteric components of the world, such as a magically appearing rock at your foot right. or a bog of eternal stench or things to overcome these challenges. And I think it could work. 
Yeah, I, it's, I think it's, it's this interesting. could tell the story. I'm a little thrown by its lack of dice, character sheets, and everything I traditionally associate that with roles. Where does the Mountain Dew go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <But laughs> at, at the same time, I, I think I'm beginning to understand what you're saying with this. And uh, while it's it's certainly not what I would consider a traditional role playing game, I, I honestly I think this could work in the hands of a gifted group. Certainly, definitely, yeah. Christian has a really well put together tutorial video on how to play online, which I will. We include. should certainly link that. Yep, mm-hmm. because this yeah, is interesting. It shows the basic and I, flow I, I, of the game. I do like that it's yeah. non-traditional. That no dice will ever be anywhere near this. And I believe this is Can the I first. Can the, the rule, the world, or whatever? That I believe this is the first is. non-traditional game I've brought to the table. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I was. Yeah, I've been looking. Is. I have been looking forward to Labyrinth because of this. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm really glad that you find it intriguing, and I will let Christian know. Because he is very passionate about this, and he is a fantastic I'd like to read the first paragraph of the introduction. Okay, go ahead. There are journeys that instill in us a sense of wonder and magic as they take us through the worlds of imagination and sensual evocation. I like that term, incidentally. Whether it's Alice exploring the Wonderland or Sarah finding her way through the labyrinth of the Goblin King, (laughs) their amazing journeys are the heart of these stories. This is a game for three to five daydreamers and explorers of the imagination who will embark on their own journey through a world of kaleidoscopic wonder, Meridian. Christian, he has a number of other games, (laughs) at least one or two of which I'm planning on bringing back on another episode. He's, first and foremost, I, I feel that he's more of a story gamer, and he writes these games that are designed to evoke narration they are designed to get people involved with that improvisation with mm-hmm. with bringing forth not just like clever words yeah. and thoughts at the time but also but an actual deep deep getting into it deep, yeah it, to the point of getting into your own feelings about things i'm just going to go ahead and put this in right now uh you can find answers to frequently asked questions as well as a document laying out advice for advanced techniques choosing locales and more on our website and you, you should probably visit this website if this sounds interesting it's www dot b e r e n g a d dot com berengad berengad www berengad dot com so the reason this game <laughs> is my runner up okay is the same reason that everway was the runner up for valerian right there's a heavy visual component the yeah. cards are beautiful the the imagery and christian does this in all of his games there are symbols and every symbol means something and they're beautifully drawn yet simple and evocative of the themes of this game, the world. Even if you don't use this to play this, there's this. Uh, what this is the main deck? What's this called? The main deck. I forget. Does it have a name? It does. It's okay. like I want to say ciphers, but okay. I, I'm wrong. Um, it's not ciphers. This is actually a good resource to just to have to flesh out. I'm going to read through some of these because I, I think they're fascinating. Um, so let's say you're playing, not even playing this game. You just want this deck. This can be used to flesh out all kinds of scenes. Like the first card, several smaller creatures pretending to be one large one. A cry for help or a stinging insult hidden behind a veil of politeness. A horde of tiny flying beasts agitated but easily distracted. A large object floating in the air with a climber on top. A sudden downpour felt or heard with strange qualities. A painting with faces you recognize with pleading looks. I mean, this, this right alone is worth whatever he's asking for this. This is a fantastic resource for any game. I agree. Looking at those, that those are those are really well done. And someone caught some in really a trap, ideas. though maybe deservedly. I mean, this is this is good stuff. So we will probably revisit this game in a later. This is episode, interesting. Okay. I'd be. If we I'd, ever do any other. You my, know. I'm a traditionalist. I think you know that about yeah. me. 
And this this struck me odd as the first time. But as I poke through it more, I'm like, this is. I was curious what you two would think about the lack yeah, of dice. I was really kind of hesitant. It, it made in me twitchy. You set it up. Yeah, Twi- yeah, but that's I, a good. I, that's I, a good word. Twitchy. I, I think people who are able to role play well and off the cuff will find this game endlessly fascinating. A collection of flowers is dangerous as they are beautiful. I, I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. And you could even use these cards for the other game that I want to do. But I, I do want to close this out by saying. Meridian is a game that I want to do. I think that we will not be able to put this in the rotation until we come up with an upgraded recording setup mm-hmm. where we can actually show what's See happening it. Yeah. on the table. Yeah. We're I definitely going to need yeah. top-down camera for that. Yeah. Once we do something like that, we'll put more we'll, we'll be able to put more visual What's uh components. what's the guy's name again? Christian Griffin. Christian Griffin, nice job, man. Yeah, this is good an stuff. Interesting game. Well done. So the game that I ultimately want to select as our finalist ah you beat him i did is a game by uh designer josh jordan it is called heroin not the drug it is the game of a girl from earth but somewhere between the age of like 10 and 16 heading to a magical world to overcome some kind of a personal problem the world that she is stepping into uh, tends to kind of build itself around the problems that she is facing in life uh, for example, with Wizard of Oz being uh, one of the games that, that is inspiring heroin, not the drug, is Dorothy, so much of what she encounters in that world is really just sort of based in her own issues in life and the people that she knows and you know the brains, the cowardice, and the heart that she feels that she needs. This kind of game is based on Labyrinth. It's based on Neil Gaiman's works. It's based yeah. on Wizard of Oz. So yeah, Heroin is the game that I think would work the best. It mixes a lot of the elements of Meridian, the spontaneous storytelling, and the swapping of companion roles between characters. But it also I noticed that brings in telling. those dice that you love so much, that we all love. We all love our dice. It uses a very simple 2D6 system to tell a story. You're looking at it. Do you have any questions? Uh, I was just getting into the mechanics right now. Um, I like how, and once again, this is this is going to be for experienced role players um, because it looks like one person plays the titular heroine, and one, then yes. the other not the drug players. Oops, stop that. <laughs> the other players. It'd be less funny if it wasn't a problem. The players are narrators, basically. Right? Uh, well, they, they, they play a companion, and then they switch off between being the narrator. Yes, so the role of narrator. There is a narrator, but it is not it's a, a shifting role. single person at the table. The narrator is responsible for setting up scenes. and looks they, like drama points. They are sometimes the responsible for closing scenes. But the other players take the role of companions. The narrator describes the location at the beginning of the chapter... And which characters are present? The heroine and all companions who have been introduced will be in the chapter. Don't resolve any problems. Instead, load the situation. All right, so it's got three parts. It's uh, setting the scene, being dramatic, and challenging the heroine. That's basically what the narrator does. Right. Whereas the companion, so the, the heroine then has to explore the scene, overcome the problem, and move towards goal, while the companions are there to either assist or get in trouble. So there's a fluctuating pool of drama points, which you can easily use bean counters or uh, magic tokens or anything, or pennies, that both the narrator and the companions split between each other. The narrator 
spins those points to create adversity and they can they can separate the team split the heroine from her companions or create other forms of conflict whereas the companions can spin those points to assist the heroine right the companions can also choose to get into trouble on their own Mm -hmm. which gives them more points but also can create a penalty for the heroine eventually overcoming okay now every scene is a little simplified in that it's mostly role-playing and exploration, asking yeah, questions. When, when you face a challenge, you choose be heroic, be successful, or take a chance. So the fun mechanic behind that, so you will always roll 2d6 to overcome the challenge. Okay. So you get to choose. Do you do it heroically? Okay. What that means is you can either be heroic and succeed or be heroic and fail. That's a seven or lower. Yep. If Still you choose success. To behave heroically, despite yep. her noble but doomed attempt to defeat the problem in front of her. If the total is eight or higher, the heroine succeeds in overcoming the challenge. Uh, now, if you choose to be successful, you will win, regardless of what your dice roll. However, if you roll too low, you will win by being childish, fearful, or, or selfish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, okay, that's interesting. Describe the heroine overcoming the narrator's challenge using the, the be successful uh, choice, but in a regrettable manner. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so you trip over your like own it. two feet. Your sword goes flying, sticks into the head of the man bullying your friend. I mean, I mean, yeah, I like that. I like so it a lot. That could have actually worked for Three Musketeers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it definitely um, works to show this is the way that the too. conflicts in Labyrinth work. Like yeah, sometimes she overcomes things in not so noble ways, but sometimes she doesn't overcome things. But she still holds her head up high. Like when she falls into the oubliette? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you put things to forget about them. It's a very simple scene in that there's only one challenge per scene. Yeah. And that's the only time you roll the dice. When you roll the dice, that's it. That, that's the challenge. Now, the companions can also roll the dice. So the companion can roll. And if they get a certain number higher when they choose to either assist or get in trouble, that will determine how much they affect her. So... If a companion chooses to assist, to assist and gets a high roll, then the heroine gets a plus two bonus to her roll, plus one for each additional companion beyond that. Whereas if a companion chooses to get in trouble, it can be minus two, minus yeah. one for each companion beyond that. So it seems like the portion of the spotlight uh, on, on the game is not split up evenly. The narrator, uh, it goes, from what I can tell, the heroine, the heroine, excuse me, uh, the the narrator and then the companion. The storytelling is whoever wants to take the lead at that time. Really. Okay. So the heroine can do some exploring, but then the storyteller can ask the companions what they do. It's like any adventuring party at that point. Yeah. Once you start playing, even though the heroine makes the ultimate role and the, the game is ultimately about her overcoming challenges, you still role play everything out. So the companions get out there and they role play getting into trouble and they role play assisting they role play their own things they can become separated in which they get their own stuff which and then they have to role play getting back to the companion but ultimately this is a game about a heroine right uh injuries so conflict resolution and how it damages for each chapter after the first two the narrator can inflict an injury or division on the heroine Use injuries to give one player a more complicated path to his goal and use divisions to make life more difficult for the whole group. For example, uh, an injury temporarily stops a character from doing one particular thing. This lasts until the end of the next chapter. 
Also, if the heroine is injured, the heroine player has minus one to a roll during the challenge at the end of this chapter. Example, Stephen spends a drama point to inflict an injury on Josh's companion character. He tells Josh that the little goblin was punched in the nose, which means he can't track people until his nose is feeling better. So I'm seeing not a lot of pen and paper here. Not a um, lot. I'm, there are no yeah, stats. Yeah. Um, a division, on the other hand, uh, splits one character from the other. It's what you were just talking about. It doesn't give any penalties on rolls, but it means that from the time it is inflicted until the end of the next chapter, the two characters are in two different physical locations. Any other player must choose which group their character is in. Okay, this is very simple. The, the PDF is only uh, 60 pages mm-hmm. long. But I like it's it, also it it's also interesting. It looks very interesting, and um, honestly, art, looking the art is gorgeous. Yeah, I was gonna say, actually, looking at the art, the, the the photography done in it is really well done, also. And then the uh, all the font, all the font. It seems to be a very, once again, a very heavy storytelling game. Which, well, sorry about that. I don't have anything against. I am fond of of games that just go. You're in a corridor, ten by ten. The walls are gray stone. There's a chest and an orc. <laughs> yeah, do do? I mean that's that kind of shit. No. Piss so, off. how to create the heroine? You, the heroine player, not the drug, determine the heroine's personality, appearance, and age between eight and eighteen. You will show how she is clever, daring, and kind, but also how she struggles with selfishness, fear, and naivety. You decide how her immaturity conflicts with her potential heroism. You may even choose to explore struggles you have personally experienced. Perhaps you will choose to tell a story about a young woman who is isolated by her intelligence, embarrassed about looking different, angry at her parents' divorce, jealous of another child, grieving a lost parent, desperate to escape poverty, Craving attention from adults or ashamed of a secret? Looking at the uh, the playthrough. Yeah, the playthrough now. You decide the roles. Choose a heroine player, narrator, or companion player. Uh, introduce the heroine and bring her to the other world. The heroine sets the scene. The heroine chooses player to narrate conflict. Narrator describes the trip to the other world. Okay. Then you're into the chapter phase. Mm-hmm. The narrator sets the scene. Uh, the heroine and the companion players respond which is uh, offer choice, introduce event, injure, divide. Uh, companion players may introduce a companion. Uh, the narrator uses the uh, be dramatic feature. And then it goes into the, res- the responses. Get in trouble, yeah. And then there's the challenges. Be successful, there's your choice there. Mm-hmm. Be heroic, take a chance. Where, again, the narrator can injure or divide a companion. Then the companion player chooses a move, which is remember a way out or become the narrator. Uh, the narrator narrates the result of the challenge, and narrator announces the end of the chapter. It looks a lot more structured than it really ends. It doesn't play. look structured at yeah. all. Well, a lot I of like games. I mean, this looks. This looks. It looks really easy, but it looks really fun at the same time. Yeah. It actually has a lot more codified structure than a lot of RPGs do. A lot of RPGs only. Bother Am I just an old fuddy duddy, or what, what's the deal here? Well, I mean, a lot of RPGs <laughs> only really bother adding structure to combat, and that is your initiative order. But modern games tend to have detailed procedures about what happens and when. Mm -hmm. That happens more frequently. This has a very specific flow to it, scene by scene by scene. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting. I I could see this working. Again, I I would say look at your gaming group before you decide which game to do this with. If you all are fairly new to role-playing games and are nervous in front of other people, this, this might be hard to do. Yeah. 
So I will say that there are a lot of videos out there of this game. YouTube is your friend. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. <laughs> Searching for them is going to be a pain in the butt. So I'm going to add some links to some that I found online to our show notes. Okay. Because if you search YouTube for heroin RPG, most of what you're going to find is for a video game. If you take oh, out that's key, right. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Cosmic Star Heroin, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic game, by the way. But it's not, <laughs> right. So if, if you put minus cosmic in your search, you'll find a whole lot of search results from Japanese porn games. So then you have there's so many you have to start restricting which your, will also be appearing yeah. in the show notes. There's a great number of games. Then there's Heroine's Quest, which is an adventure game. Eventually, once you have figured out the right search pattern and exclusions in YouTube, let's just link it. Yeah, you can do it. There are some really much good examples. Yeah. I, I think this would be a fun game for us to play. With one I, other I think person. we're skilled enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I I would be hip on playing. I mean, I think everybody does have from time to time once they get into mm-hmm. get into an, into a a game with their feet a little bit more. They have a little bit of that anxiety of like, am I doing this right? Yeah. I I think if you're a little more experienced, this game should be fairly easy to get into, and it looks like. If you have experience with LARPing, this would be very easy to get into, possibly. There is mm-hmm. a LARP version oh. of heroin. By okay, the I'm company. just flipping through yep. it. I'm like, this would be very uh, easy is, to... Uh, like, if, if you're a LARPer, this would be easy. It is called Dangers Untold. Okay. It is the same writer, the same stuff. Oh, wow, I could be messing this up. Mm-hmm. It was linked on drive through as the companion to okay. this. Dangers Untold. This game, I read through it twice. Uh, again, it's only 60 pages. It's yeah. super easy. And I think a good third, if not half of those pages are this beautiful, evocative art. I've never seen art like this in any other game. Oh, uh, no. E- you have. know what? Even and Not in a game, no. But e- even, it's, a, it's a style I like. Even with the LARPing stuff that I did way back in like yeah. 97, it... The photography wasn't it anywhere. It was terrible. Near. It yeah. was bad photography. It was somebody that took their goth so girlfriend out to a cemetery <laughs> and took yes. some dangerously gothy, sexy mm-hmm. photos. You of can her. see her shoulder in her bra strap. Yeah. Are, 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 by the way, are any of you familiar with goths in trees? No, you're not. Goths and trees. Well, I've then heard. I can't have, really have this conversation. Okay, I've heard of it. Do they hang like involved. bats? Or? It's it's a it's a meme. It is a very small meme, but it's a growing meme. There's a website about it. It's a Tumblr. There's a Facebook group. Goths in trees. To the point that every time my partner has her annual goth party, everybody goes outside, climbs in a tree, and takes For a big God picture. Sense. It's a thing. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about LARPs goths and Goths. And it just reminded me of trees. Goths and Trees. What goths and Trees. That, one, that one's for you, sweetie. <laughs> what am I looking at? So do you have any questions about this? No, it this? seems I, I understand the mechanic. Yeah. I could play this right now. All right. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think this is just odd. I'm goths looking and trees. Goths and Trees oh, right well. now. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think that's a wrap, right? I yeah. think so. I think yeah, so. Okay. I think so. So this was um wait, what was uh, the runner up? Yeah, let's do that oh, again. Oh yeah. So the winner, sorry, the runner up. Yeah, the runner up was Meridian by mm-hmm. Christian Griffin of Berengad Games. Okay. okay. And the movie was Labyrinth. Um but and the winner, the, the winner is uh Heroin who which was written by Josh Jordan. Josh Jordan. And Josh Jordan, I really like your artwork. 
of ginger game, goat games. Of ginger goat games. Yeah. I really like your photography and your artwork. Oh, and that's your, not him. Your... The photos were by J.R. Blackwell. Okay, well, J.R. Blackwell. Uh, I really like the photography and the layout and the artwork. It is amazing. But the yeah. game also looks great. Dustin's yeah. a fantastic photographer as well. You Thank did you. all the photos for my motorcycle samurai Yes, shoot. I did. Thank you. Good times. So Way back when. So what do we got coming next week? Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Cowabunga, dude. Yep. <laughs> You're two minutes late, dude. Pizza dude's got 30 seconds. <laughs> now, uh, we're doing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The, the 1990. First one. From yeah. 1990. The only. I, I enjoyed the other ones. I did. The well, other the, ones the were sequels, good. The sequel was fun. I didn't even mind the new one. I like the cartoons. I haven't, I haven't watched the new ones yet. The cartoons. Again, there's this universe where somebody named Michael Bay exists. <laughs> I generally try not to venture too far into that universe. This I go was a... I, I was a little older when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles dropped than I was than, say, when Transformers was happening. Yeah, we were... So I don't have that same visceral connection. I was... That's mine. Oh, so this okay. is your Transformers. So you guys were Transformers, and I was GoBots. I was Ninja Turtles. All right, this I should have be all interesting. Four, I have all four of the original Ninja Turtles unopened in the box. Nice. On a shelf of my mom's house. You think and Baxter Stockman, April O'Neil, the Shredder, and Splinter. April in that jumpsuit. And, <laughs> and my personal favorite, Usagi Yochimbo. Yeah, yeah. The articulated toy. Mm -hmm. The others were not articulated. Well, they specifically I don't. I articulated the, uh... his toy so that you could pose him to make the same poses that he makes yeah. in the comic books. I have the, uh, the old uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics upstairs, too. I, I have them. All. I still yeah. have the old school Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles RPG. I the really dark. Do as well. <laughs> <laughs> I have multiple copies of this. Well, let's just go ahead we'll and say it's about. three for three because I have a copy too. Awesome! Oh my <laughs> freaking god! This is what? Wow! So, are we even going to bother with runners up, or should we just dive deep? No, we know. No, we need we're going to start with runners up. Yeah, we need to have. I've runners got some up. good ones too. All right. all right. Well, thanks for tuning in this week. I was Matthew. And I'm Dusty. And I'm Nathaniel. And we'll see you next week. Smell bad. It does not. Thanks for listening to another episode of our show. We're a new name in the enormous sea of podcasts and appreciate any feedback that you can send our way. If you like what you've heard, or even if you didn't, please leave us a review and let us know. Got a movie or a game that you want to hear us talk about? Drop us a comment on our website at havemovieswillgame.com or hit us up on any of the usual social networks. We'd love to hear from you. The opening theme music is Rock and Gravel by Sid Valentine's Patent Leather Kids, part of the public domain and found on publicdomain4u.com. Opening narration is provided by Isaac Scher. Have Movies Will Game is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next week. <laughs>